If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter, the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter. Uh, you may also follow along in the Pew Bible um, on page 1624, although I will be reading out of the New King James uh, version of the um, scriptures. Luke and the chapter, I'm beginning to read, I'm going to read the first two verses and then go down to verse 11. This is the word of God. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable, the parable of the uh, ninety and the nine, and then the parable of the lost coin. Then at verse 11, a third parable. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of good that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things were. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him, so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Let us pray. O oh God, as we come before your word, grant that we might uh, read, mark, and learn, and 
that we would have an understanding of what uh, the scripture says to us. And grant us, O God, the grace to respond in faith and obedience for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, while he was driving through a southern town, Billy Graham was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. And um, he he acknowledged his guilt. He didn't hide it. Uh, But the police officer said, you're going to have to appear in court. And so... A few days later, Dr. Graham found himself standing before a judge. And um, the judge asked, what do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty, said Dr. Graham. The judge said, that'll be $10, $1 for each mile per hour you exceeded the speed limit. You have violated the law, and the fine must be paid. But then the judge did this. He took out his wallet pulled out a $10 bill, attached it to the ticket, and said, I'm going to pay this for you. And then he took Dr. Graham out for a steak dinner. Well, later in one of his messages at the Crusades, uh, he said to the crowd, he said, after sharing that story, he said, that is how God treats repentant sinners. Well, before us this morning... Uh, is an even more wonderful story of how God treats repentant sinners. We know this is the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. It could be called the parable of the lost sons because there are only two sons in this parable who are lost, one who stayed home and one who left uh, to the far country. Um, The story really says as much about the older son who stayed home as it does the younger son. In fact, what Jesus says about the older son in this parable is one of the most important lessons in the Bible. It is a parable that also tells us about God the Father. Um, The word prodigal uh, means recklessly extravagant, um, spendthrift. Uh, And this has led one writer to actually call this the story of the prodigal God, God of great expenditure, who lavishes his grace upon his children. And uh, it's really an amazing story of God's love, his costly grace, uh, his amazing grace to sinners. The context is vital, and that's why I read the opening verses. There were two groups that were gathered around Jesus. One of them were the tax collectors and the sinners. These are people who uh, had no use for God's moral law. Uh, They were completely indifferent to uh, living for God. And they are represented by the younger son in the parable. The other group were the scribes and Pharisees. These were the religious people. Uh, who very scrupulously kept the traditions and the laws of Moses in an outward way. They are represented by the older son in the parable. But I want you to notice in these opening verses how both groups respond to Jesus. We read of the tax collectors and sinners. They drew near to Jesus. 
that they were gathering to him. Actually, this is, a, is written in a way that tells us that this was a, a, a common thing. Wherever Jesus was, these people were just drawn to the Lord Jesus. And it might cause us to ask the question, am I the kind of person that draws the moral outcasts in Clover who want to turn their life around? Are they drawn to me the way they were drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a fair question to ask. The scribes and Pharisees, however, look at how they responded. This man receives sinners and eats with them. They were offended. Doesn't he know who these people are? That was the reaction to Jesus by the religious people. He receives sinners. You know that word means to welcome sinners, uh, to look for them. He ate with them. And in that culture and time, to eat with anyone was a sign of honor and acceptance. And this is one reason why the Pharisees and scribes were all bent out of shape. They couldn't understand how Jesus could eat with people that were just morally um, disrespectable. Um, and so they complained. So he tells three parables. All three are an answer to the scribes and Pharisees and their complaint. The first two parables focus more on the searching love of God for lost sinners. That is the accent in those first two parables, the lost sheep and lost coin. The third parable of the prodigal son has that same message, but it's more personal, and it shows us the other side. It reminds us that no one will come back to the Lord apart from something happening in his life. That is repentance and faith. But the whole point of these three parables, and especially this third one, reminds us that there's hope in the gospel. There's hope for the worst of sinners. Where sin abounds, grace more than abounds. And so I hope that you'll see the hope in the gospel uh, here from this parable this morning. I'd like us to look at the first half of the parable of the prodigal son and notice the prodigal's rebellion, his repentance, and then his restoration. His rebellion, his repentance, and then his restoration. Well, let's notice his rebellion uh, in verses 11 through 16. We're told a man had two sons. The younger son was restless, he was impatient, he was self-willed. I'm sick and tired of all these chores. I want to be free. Let me out of here. And so he goes to his father with a very bold and shocking request. Give me the share of the estate that's coming to me. Now, it wasn't unusual for a son to anticipate receiving something in the estate from his father. But this is unheard of. You would never go to your father while he was alive and say, give me what's coming to me. This was an amount of saying, I wish you were dead. Uh, completely unheard of uh, in that particular culture. Before we're too hard on this, 
young man, we need to recognize that by nature that is you and me, apart from the grace of God. We too are self-willed, impatient, proud, rebellious. We want to go our own way. As the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way or her own way. And that's really the essence of sin. I want my way. I don't want God's way. Well, that is this young man. Now, in that society, this kind of behavior would be normally met with a beating um, and dismissal from the house. You know, rejection by the father. Um, and yet, what do we see in this story? We see amazing love and patience. He still has affection for his wayward son. And he's willing to yield to his request. Instead of exploding in anger, he gives in. Probably sells some land, gives the son uh, what was coming to him. And so once he has the money in hand, he gathers his belongings and he takes off. Departs to a far country. And now to a Jew listening to this, the far country might have called to mind um, rebellious Israel, who, when they refused to repent, were conquered and exiled to a far country, the country of Babylon, for example, in the 6th century before Christ. And so that's where they would have to learn their lesson, as this young boy would have to learn his lesson the hard way in the far country. And so arriving, we read in verse 13, that there he wasted or scattered his substance with riotous living. He squandered his estate with the wildest extravagance. Notice he gathers and then he scatters. Now he has friends. I don't know if you've ever won the lottery. I hope that you've never bought a lottery ticket, and I'm not encouraging you to do that. That is gambling, and that is an irresponsible use of the money that God gives you. But if you were to win the lottery, you would discover that you have some new friends uh, who suddenly be interested in you. Um, <clears throat> Wealth adds many friends, Solomon said. And this man many friends. But notice that every good thing that he's learned at home, every virtue of morality and discipline and economy and self-restraint thrown to the wind. And he gives himself completely to a life of reckless self-indulgence. Um, no curfews to keep, no fields to plow, no rules to follow. He's his own boss, his new God is pleasure, and he's that God with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind. But he who loves pleasure is going to be a poor man, and that's what we see here. One morning he wakes up with a hangover, and he notices he has any money in his wallet. Money. What's worse, he reads the morning paper, and the headline says, economy collapses, food shortage. And this boy's hungry. And so he gets out, starts pounding the pavement, looking for work. Jobs are scarce, but he finally lands a very menial task 
with uh, presumably a Gentile farmer uh, who raises hogs. He says, okay, you can work for me. I don't have a lot to pay. Uh, go out there and slop those hogs. Now, again, think, think of uh, him being a Jew. This would further alienate him from his background and his heritage. Um, he is in desperate, <coughs> desperate straits. In fact, what little he learned apparently wasn't enough to buy enough food to satisfy him because it says in verse 16, he would gladly have stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. It is, a, it is a, an extreme picture of someone who is friendless, who is famished, who is desperate, um, who is despondent. Uh, he has hit the bottom. You know, there's a certain pleasure in sin but eventually it will turn bitter in your mouth. If you live your life without God, you're going to have a tough row eventually. I know a young man who was raised in the church. And when he was about 19 or 20, <clears throat> he got off the rails. I mean, we thought he was really focused on a promising career, but he got off the rails and he started dabbling in drugs. He eventually got hooked on heroin. And he lived on the streets, quite literally, for months and months. And he maintained his habit through thievery. Stealing from his family, shoplifting. This led to arrests, uh, got in trouble with the law. Uh, he would spend nights, cold nights, under bridges, sleeping. Or he would sleep on a porch of an abandoned house in rundown neighborhoods. He was giving himself to this god, heroin. He was addicted. I'm thankful to say that by the grace of God, he's turned a corner. And for many months now, he's been focusing on living for the Lord. But the point is that, you know, God can handle us pretty roughly. Um, to show us the, the emptiness of uh, the course that we're pursuing and the vanity of the world. And, and boy, that is a blessing. Uh, I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody in here who's, who, who finds his or her life reflected in this story, but I tell you, it is a great blessing from God if you begin to feel that you're on the wrong path. And the world is empty and vain. <clears throat> and uh, there must be a better way. <clears throat> it's the mercy of the Lord if you feel that way. This is the first step on the road back. And that's what we see here. Now, that leads us to the repentance of this prodigal in verse 17. You know, no one is forever going to be happy uh, in the distant country. There's no true and lasting satisfaction uh, outside of God. I want you to notice in verse 17 a remarkable expression. But when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, now you know, we think of people who come to Christ when they're saved, they come to Christ, but they also come to themselves. You see, before they didn't really know themselves. They were lost, they were blind, they were dead, but now 
their eyes are open and they see the truth and they see the foolishness of the course that they've been on. They see the danger uh, of that course. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we see here. This young man came to himself. John Calvin said that the sum of true wisdom lies in two things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And we see that this prodigal son, this young son, has finally come to see the truth about himself. What a fool I have been to have treated my father like that and to leave all that I had. I mean, I have less than even his hired servants. I remember uh, many years ago, a man came to me one day, and, and uh, he was in his mid-50s, and he'd actually been connected with the church for all of his life. But he said, he said this, he said, the lights have come on. And I knew exactly what he meant. And the, the change in his behavior confirmed it. He realized that he was on a deadly, dangerous course. He was, giving, he was living a double life. But I'll never forget that. He said, the lights have come on. And it's so, so profound because you see before the Lord comes into our lives, we're in darkness. We're like people who can't see. We're blind. Another rebel was a girl named Chrissy. And Chrissy was the teenage daughter of a pastor in New York City who had distanced herself from her parents and God and abused her mind and body. And there were, there were nights on end when her parents did not know where she was in that huge city. And it was a tremendous burden upon them. Here was a man who was a pastor. And he was trying to lead the people. And his daughter didn't know where she was. And uh, they were helpless. They were worried. They were frantic. And one night at a prayer meeting, a Tuesday night prayer meeting, and this church was known in New York City as a church of prayer. And the people could tell that their pastor was so burdened. And they came to him and said, this night, we're going to focus our prayers on your daughter, Chrissy. He would later say that prayer meeting sounded like a birthing room in a hospital. So earnest and loud were the prayers of Christian friends for that young lady. And do you know what happened? In 30 hours, it was Tuesday night, Thursday morning, this pastor was shaving upstairs. His wife called him down. She was very urgent. Come down immediately. Came down in the kitchen. Down on the floor was his daughter. And she was in tears. She said, Daddy, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you and Mommy and myself. And will you please forgive me? And of course, they embraced her and they forgave her. And then she asked them this. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? I woke up in the middle of the night with a nightmare, and God showed me that I was going to hell. Well, that story had a happy ending. That girl eventually hit her to Bible college. And it might ask us a question, why don't I come to more prayer meetings? Look what God can do in the life of a lost Some of us here today could tell a similar story. There was a period in our past when we had our back to God and we were in the far country and we were spending our money for what was not bread and our labor for what did not satisfy 
But thank God he brought us to see our sin and misery and made us to turn around to him. You know, the Lord has been compared to a bloodhound. And you know a bloodhound, once he gets on a track, he can't give up. And the Lord, as the hound of heaven, came after us, and he continues to come after sinners today. And this is what we see with this prodigal. He comes to his senses, and he sees the truth. And he devises a plan. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He plans what he's going to say, but it's not just good intentions, is it? You know what they say about good intentions. How do we know this man was sincere, that he was truly repentant because of what we read in verse 20? And he arose and came to his father. Anybody who is truly repentant toward God is going to get up out of the pig pen, whatever the nature of that sin is, and he's going to go to his father. That's what we see here. He arose and came to his father. He was repentant. And to repent is to be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. If you really want to get right with God, you've got to go home. You've got to go to the father. And there's a humility in repentance. Notice, he doesn't come back demanding to be reinstated. He's very lowly. He says, I'll be a hired servant. I'll live in town. That brings us to the last point, which is his restoration. And I think, I really think this is one of the happiest scenes in the entire Bible. Verses 21 to 24. He comes home. And we read, when, his, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Uh, Matthew Henry, an old Puritan commentator, said that this father had eyes of mercy, a heart of mercy, feet of mercy, arms of mercy, and lips of mercy. And remarkably, he ran. Uh, no one in his position would run. Maybe a child would run. Maybe a, a woman would run. But the patriarch of a family in the Middle East would never run. But this man isn't concerned about his dignity, is he? All he's concerned about is his son, for whom he has been yearning, praying, and longing that he would come home. There's a famous painting of a father. The, the, the prodigal's father is a famous painting. And he's looking like this out on the horizon. And you can just imagine this man breaking into a full uh, speed run. Uh, he can't get to his son quickly enough. And there's not the least bit of ill will, is there? He doesn't say, I'll forgive you, son, but don't you see what a fool you've been? Or I receive you back, but don't ever disobey me again. None of that. You know, sometimes we're forgiving, but we qualify and we trim the edges of our forgiveness. Not this father. In fact, he doesn't even give his son time to finish his confession. Somebody said he was squeezing him so hard he couldn't talk. And then to further show his love, he lavishes all these gifts on him. Verse 22, get the best robe, bring out the ring and the shoes. These were marks of honor and acceptance. Are you hungry? Have you had anything to eat? And you can know that this boy was famished. He was starved to death. We're going to have a barbecue like we've never had before. Now, it's going to be a beef barbecue, 
These are Jews, of course. And uh, we're going to invite the whole town. And the uh, scholars on the Middle East say that this would be very, very rare to kill a fatted calf. Uh, only for the most special occasions would this be done. Very rare. Well, the whole community would be invited. And why all of this? Well, he tells us in verse 24, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You know, that's what God does to repentant sinners. He lavishes his grace on the sinner. Doesn't matter what you've done, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Where sin abounds, grace more than abounds. And I would just put this question to you. Have you come to yourselves? I don't know your hearts. God knows your hearts. But I'm asking you, have you come to see the truth about yourself? That by nature, apart from grace of God, that you're a lost, guilty, rebellious, proud sinner who wants to go his own way, her own way. What are you feeding on? Are you feeding on the bread of life? Or are you feeding on the husks of the world? God has made you to know him and to love him and to worship him. Maybe there's one person here this morning. I don't know. Maybe there's one person who knows you need to get right with God. He's calling to you. He yearns for you. He loves you. His grace is reaching out to you. His arms are outstretched. They're outstretched through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who hung upon a cross 2,000 years ago. And he himself yearns for you. He is the good shepherd. He wants you to come. He's calling to you. Sinner, come home. And if you come to him, he will and bless you richly. So God grants that you would know his grace and experience his love. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you have said whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Work in the hearts of all of us that if we are indeed your children, may we rejoice and give thanks that your love sought us out and brought us home that, Lord, if there's one person, even one here, who needs to come home from that far country, that you would give them no rest until they turn back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.